0: Okay, so we're just going to keep going through the Gospel of Luke this morning. Our text is Luke eleven twenty-seven 27, and 28. We are just doing two verses. Uh, but don't worry, I have a whole sermon worth of things to say on two verses. So uh, does anyone remember the word I taught us a while ago that scholars use to designate short little Bible passages? Very good. I, I heard something like it. Pericope. Pericope is the word for short little self-contained stories in the Bible, like Jesus walking on water or casting the demons into the pigs or dying on the cross. These are pericopes. Most pericopes are like 7 to 20 verses long. That's how long most of the stories are. Some of them are much longer, like 30 to 60 verses, like the birth narratives. At the beginning Jesus' birth, those, those pericopes are very long. But then there are also a handful, maybe like 20, of these very short little pericopes, these short little Jesus stories that are only two verses long sprinkled throughout the Gospel of Luke. And so usually when preachers go through a Bible book, these short little stories get tacked on to the end of a bigger story or the beginning of a bigger story, which are frankly more interesting and well-known stories, and so these, these short little ones kind of get tacked onto the bigger stories. But this morning, we're going to look at this short little two-verse pericope all by itself uh, because as I studied the passage and read commentaries and prayed over the text, I thought that the point of this two-verse Uh, little story was impactful enough in me, it was kind of like spine straightening enough and spiritual smelling salts enough for me personally that I I want to share it with you this morning and hopefully it's as uh, impactful for you as it was for me. And that's why we're not tacking it on to a bigger story. So we're just going to look at these two verses. In these two verses, Jesus is in the middle of a crowd. He's been preaching. He's been fighting with the Pharisees and a lady shouts something out to Jesus and Jesus corrects her and that's it. We don't know who she was. She never says anything else again. She doesn't show up later. She shouts out something at Jesus. He says, "Nope," and they keep going. And that's that's the whole story. So we're just going to look at that this morning. And here's how we're going to do it. Here's how we're going to look at these two verses. Here's what we're going to do. First, we're going to situate the story of the shouting lady in the life of Jesus. What's been happening in the life of Jesus in the hours and days leading up to this exchange and how does it kind of fit in with the overall narrative of Luke? Then, I want to talk about how we make the same formal mistake as this lady. What she shouts out that Jesus corrects her on, even if we might not shout out the same words or give the same particular material example that she gives, we basically say the same, in essence, thing that she says many times. We meaning the American church, and we meaning maybe us here, and we meaning me specifically. So, so we shout out something that it might be materially different, but is formally the same as her. And I want to show that connection. Then finally, I want to look at Jesus's response to the shouting lady and therefore us that comes from the whole gospel of Luke. So Jesus in this correction doesn't go on to then create and construct for her a full-blooded, full-throated theology. But throughout the entire ministry of Jesus, there is a full response to her and what she said incorrect that is also therefore a response to us and what we think is incorrect. And that is the main point. That's the one big point we're leading up to okay then after that i'm going to throw in two bonus preacher reminders two bonus preacher points that i have made these same points before but i'm going to make them again today because they continue to be true and they continue to be important and it's important to have these truths before us as we walk with jesus and read about jesus and meditate on jesus okay and then we'll wrap it up and put a bow on it and call it a sermon does that make sense People have told me that they like my clarity at the beginning of a sermon, so I am smacking you over the head with clarity. This is what we're doing. Okay, so here we go. Let's get into our two-verse pericope. And I'm going to move this or I will run into it. Luke 11:27 27, and 28. As Jesus said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said... Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And that's it. He moves on and she doesn't say anything back and there's no continued conversation. She shouts out, blessed is your mom. And he says, no, blessed are the people who listen to me. Okay. And then it keeps on going. So that's, that's our text this morning. Now. Uh, first thing I said is I want to situate this in the life of Jesus. How did we get to this kind of weird spot? Well, remember the big story of the Gospel of Luke. It's really easy to get caught up in all the little stories in the Gospel of Luke, and you forget the big narrative going on. The big story of the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus spends almost two years, he spends a year and a half, almost two years, up in the north of Israel in Galilee. And he's up in the north of Israel, and he's saying, the kingdom of God is coming with me. All that God has promised, all of his promises to over throw Satan to start a kingdom of light to bring people from every tribe and tongue and nation who love one another uh, to start a family that I God am with to forgive their sins to give them peace to give them new lives all that God has promised I am bringing it into reality says Jesus he spends two years walking around Galilee making that claim I'm starting the kingdom of God then after about two years of that Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem and he starts a march towards Jerusalem where he's going to inaugurate the kingdom of God. And so the middle 10 chapters of the gospel of Luke, there's a bunch of little stories, but all of those little stories happen on a road trip. Jesus is on a big road trip to Jerusalem where he's going to start the kingdom of God. And so it's on this road trip that this lady shouts this out. And now I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again because I think we need to hear this. The uh, first century was more politically tumultuous. The culture was at a boiling point. There was frenetic, emotional, social tension. There was more of that in the first century than there is in the 21st century. I don't think we really believe that. I think we think that in the 21st century in America, we're really dealing with political fighting. We're really dealing with cultural boiling points and things are fraying. We are dealing with family issues and social issues and emotional tension. But then when we read the Bible, we're reading kind of like a Nerf world. Things weren't as intense in the first century as they are for us dealing with our elections and our lives, right? We wouldn't say that out loud, but we all kind of feel that. I'm preaching, and I can say it out loud. I think we all kind of feel that sometimes. The reality is the opposite. If we think that way, it's only because we are historically ignorant, The first century had political, social, emotional turmoil much more intense than what we are dealing with right now in our situation. Has anyone seen anyone on your way to church? Did anyone drive past anyone who was being publicly executed for their political opinions? No. People were crucified in the first century for their political opinions. You might get crucified on Facebook. But people are physically crucified for political opinions in the first century. Families are torn apart because of cultural tensions. We might have like tense thanksgivings, but their families are literally torn apart because of the cultural tensions in the first century. And it's in that boiling pot that Jesus says um, the Roman Empire isn't real. Roman Empire is not the true kingdom. And the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, they're not the kingdom of God. I'm the true kingdom of God. It's in that tenuous time that Jesus makes these kingdom claims and then goes on a big road trip to Jerusalem. And as Jesus is on this road trip to Jerusalem, he's surrounded by his twelve apostles, and he's surrounded by um, hundreds of disciples who believe in him, but he's also surrounded by large crowds of people who are just curious. They're not for him or against him. They heard he might do miracles. And so there's large crowds of people who are on the edge. And then there's also in this big crowd, there's enemies, people who actually show up to challenge Jesus or to fight Jesus. So this big caravan that is marching slowly towards Jerusalem has thousands, if not tens of thousands of people in it. And everyone is expecting one thing to happen. When Jesus gets to Jerusalem, there will be blood. You can't start a kingdom of God movement and march to the capital without someone dying. And so if you're for Jesus, you think he's going to get there and overthrow the other kingdoms. And if you're on the edge, you're just kind of like interested. Someone's going to die. You can't claim this and not die. And then if you're against Jesus, you hope he dies. Now, we know by the end of the story that Jesus does start the kingdom of God. He starts the kingdom of God not by overthrowing the kingdoms of the world, but by letting them destroy him. And in so doing, overthrow Satan and pay for sins. But we're not there yet. We're just on the road where everyone's expecting there to be blood. It's like a Cormac McCarthy novel. There is going to be blood when this guy reaches Jerusalem. Then, in the middle of this politically tenacious road trip, where everyone's, like, ready to kill each other, at the middle of this road trip, Jesus just had a fight with the Pharisees about who is actually an agent of spiritual darkness. Um, So that's what Pastor Brian preached on last week. That was the last pericope. And I think in that pericope, we also don't feel the weight that we're supposed to because we are all too modern and we're too secular. I don't know if we really believe that there are dark spirits who destroy people's lives and there are dark powers which rip families apart and destroy cultures, right? We kind of, we know we're supposed to believe demons exist because we're Christians, but we don't feel the fear and weight of spiritual darkness the way uh, the people in the first century did. And so if we really feel the spiritual weight of dark powers, then Jesus fighting with the Pharisees, them saying, you're your spiritual agent is spiritual darkness, and him fighting back and saying, no, you're an agent of spiritual darkness, that, uh, that interchange should be extremely weighty and tense. And so that, that interchange just ends. And when that ends, in the middle of this trip, that is when this lady shouts out, uh, Jesus, blessed is your mom. And he goes, uh, no, blessed are the people who listen to me. And then he keeps walking. That's the setup for the situation we're in. That's the larger uh, story of the Gospel of Luke. And so I want to say a word now about what the woman says. The woman says, uh, blessed is your mom. So the word blessed in the Bible is used in one of two ways. There's kind of two levels of blessed. One level of blessed is just being used in the normal, maybe like everyday secular sense of blessed, which is to make someone happy. If you give someone a gift, or you say something nice to someone, or you live in a harmonious way, you're blessing them. And so sometimes blessed just means making someone happy. But then sometimes in the Bible, the word blessed is being used in a kind of high-octane black coffee, theologically dense sense of the word with a lot of theology packed into the word blessed because in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham and God says, uh, the whole world is messed up, but Abraham, I'm going to bless you and through you, Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole world. So God promises blessing to and through the family of Abraham. And then for hundreds of years, God works with the family of Abraham to say, Uh, these are the specific blessings I'm going to bring about. I'm going to overthrow darkness. I'm going to forgive your sins. I'm going to resurrect you from the dead. I'm going to be with you and I'm going to, I'm going to send my spirit to be in you so that you can walk in my ways. And so God promises all of these blessings to the family of Abraham over hundreds of years. And so sometimes in the new Testament, when the word blessing is used, it's not just making someone happy. It's specifically being tied in with this big plan for the family of Abraham to be blessed. So the woman in this scene, she might be using the word blessed in kind of the everyday sense. She might just be saying, Jesus, I'm pro you. I'm on your team. Uh, this trip, it's going really well. Those guys were wrong. I'm pro Jesus, and you. I bet you make your mom happy. Blessed is your mom. Uh, she might, or she might be using it on the theology sense. But then Jesus, I think he is certainly using the word blessed in the high octane black coffee, theologically dense sense of the term. Jesus is saying, no. She's not blessed just cuz she's my mom. Do you know what? Do you want to know who gets all of the blessings in the uh, of the family of Abraham? Do you want to know who gets all of the things that God has promised to his kingdom people? It's the people who listen to me. I will tell you how to come into the kingdom of God and receive blessing. He doesn't say, "Well, thanks for having my back. Things are a little tense around here and I just got yelled at publicly, but thanks for having my team and being pro Jesus." He says, "No. Uh, You don't understand who gets the blessings. The blessings of the family of Abraham come to the people who listen to me. I will tell you how to come into the kingdom. So this is my summary of situating the story of the shouting lady in the story of Jesus. The lady shouts something pro-Jesus in a very tense moment. But Jesus, rather than just taking the compliment, he corrects her misutterance about how people receive kingdom blessing. Jesus says that rather than coming into the kingdom through familial relation to him, people must come into the kingdom in the way he asks them to. Rather than just saying, thanks for being on my team, he says, no, you don't get to make up your own way into the kingdom. Even if the way you make up is being my literal mom, you don't get to make up your own way into the kingdom. I will tell you how to come into the kingdom of God. So so then secondly, what I want to do in our sermon is point out that we make the same mistake as this shouting lady. We say, hey, things are pretty tense around here in the 21st century, politically, culturally, emotionally. Life is pretty tense in America, but I'm pro-Jesus. I'm on Jesus' team, and I'm going to make up my own group of people who get the kingdom blessings. And so the specific material example of being related to Jesus, we might not believe that's the specific example, but we do the same thing of saying, I'm pro-Jesus in a tense time, and here's the people who are going to get blessings. Okay, So, so here, are, here are a few examples of, I think, uh, the own, our own groups that we make up who gets kingdom blessings. Uh, and, and this list could be, go on forever. And during second hour, we're going to talk about things we could add to this list. But this is my list of just three groups that we make up. And we say, you know what? I'm pro-Jesus, and here's who gets blessing. The first group is uh, those people who decide to believe in the sacrificial efficacy of the cross at a young age. And that's kind of a prolexic, like purposefully kind of humorous way to say, here's the people who get blessing. It's um, when you're eight years old and you're raised in a Christian home, or you're like six or seven or eight years old in a Christian home, what happens is your parents sit you down and they say at some point, "Uh, little Timmy, whatever your name is, little Timmy, here's what's going to happen. Timmy, you're going to die one day. And when you die, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to burn in a lake of fire forever. But, little Timmy, if you do believe in Jesus, if you believe he paid for your sins, you get to come to a land of infinite happiness with mommy and daddy. Do you believe Jesus paid for your sins? And and that conversation, a form of that conversation happens to young Christians across America. And guess what little Timmy always says? Every little Timmy has always said, I believe in Jesus. No little Timmy has ever said, I'm going to do some reading about atonement theory. No little Timmy has ever says, you know what, I think I'm going to look up some facts about this before I make a decision. Everyone says, I would rather live in a land of infinite happiness with mom and dad than burn in a lake of fire. But then it doesn't matter if little Timmy grows up to not have a love for God, to not walk in the spirit, to not be concerned with kingdom matters, to not love to meet with God. When he was a kid, he said, I believe Jesus pays for my sins. Of course I'm in. I got baptized, and I said I didn't want to go to hell. I believe the cross works. Those are the people who will be blessed. I'm putting this in an obviously provocative, ironic way. I'm kind of making, I'm memeing the entire idea. But there is something in America that says the true kingdom blessed people are the people who get told, do you want to go to hell or heaven? Well, I guess I'd rather not go to hell. I believe in the cross. And then it doesn't matter whether you love God and are changed by his spirit and walk with his son. You said, I don't, believe it. I don't want to go to hell one time, and those are the people who get blessed. Okay? There's another way we kind of make up our own group of people who get blessed, and it's people who follow all the good, right, Christian guidelines. It's all of the people who watch the right movies and not the wrong movies. You're not allowed to, write, to watch R-rated movies unless they're about the crucifixion of Jesus, then you can watch that one. And it's all the people who uh, listen to the right music and not the wrong music, and it's the people who drink the right things and not the wrong things and smoke the right things and not the wrong things, and it's all of the people who read the right books and not the wrong books. All of the people who go to the right parties and not the wrong parties, these are the people who follow all the right Christian guidelines. They're the people who are obviously going to receive kingdom blessings. And you reduce coming into the kingdom to just outwardly, externally following, following all the right Christian stuff and saying the right words and not saying the wrong words. And uh, I have friends who now, my age, live thoroughly secular lives. They don't hate religion. They're fine with religion. They're fine with Jesus. They live thoroughly secular lives. And when they talk about what it was like to grow up in church, they have journals and they have sermon notes about church being this. Church is... You shouldn't drink that. Here's 13 reasons why you shouldn't drink that. You shouldn't watch that movie. Here's 17 reasons you shouldn't watch that movie. You shouldn't have sex before you're married. Here's 195,000 reasons you shouldn't have sex before you're married. And I'm fine with all of those guidelines. All of the Christian guidelines make sense to me. You should act the way Christian morality generally tells you to act. What I'm against is us reducing all of Christianity to this is how you receive kingdom blessing. This is how you come into the kingdom. You have to be related to Jesus. No. You come into the kingdom. You receive all of kingdom blessings by just believing in the cross one time. No. Here's how you come into the kingdom and you receive all kingdom blessing. You just follow all the right moral Christian guidelines. And I think this example of a false idea of what we make up is is pushed on by parents. Because there are parents who just so don't want their kids to make bad decisions. I just so don't want you to ruin your life. So I'm going to take you to church and make you and make you follow all the right Christian guidelines. And again, I'm not trying to say that's bad. And I'm not down on parents who want their kids to make good decisions. Obviously. I'm down on saying Christianity is reduced to these right Christian guidelines. And if you just follow all the right stuff, that's what following Jesus is. And so there's a way of doing church in America and being in a Christian home that says the truly blessed people, I'm pro Jesus and the truly blessed people are the people who do all the right stuff. And I think Jesus would say you don't get points just for being pro me and then making up your own rules. You don't get points for just being pro me and then making up your own Christian guidelines. The way into the kingdom is listen to me. I will tell you how to receive kingdom blessings. You don't get to just make it up. Here's a final one. Political affiliation. Here's the truly blessed people. It's the people who are pro-Jesus, and then vote the right way, or the left way. I have a, uh, there's a pastor I know, I'm not going to say his name, because some of you might maybe know him, and then you could reverse engineer the, the story. But there's a pastor I know down in Texas, and he had to have this real conversation with a congregant of his. This isn't a joke. This isn't a meme. This is a real conversation that a pastor had to have with a congregant. This congregant did not love God. He was not walking in the Spirit. He didn't have any desire for kingdom issues. He wasn't in love with Jesus. Um, He wasn't living a horrible life of sin, but he was just not concerned with walking with God. And this congregant said, I must be a Christian. I was born in Texas and I've always voted Republican. I must be a Christian. Okay, that, he is in essence making the exact same mistake as the woman in our story. I'm pro-Jesus, and here's the group of people who get blessed. You have to be a Texan and vote Republican. And, and this, uh, this sword cuts both ways. There's other parts of the country where the way you get blessed is you're pro-Jesus, and then you do things for the other political party, right? So it cuts across all the aisles saying, here's how you get blessed. You have to be pro-Jesus and then move and shake for the right political issues, That's just us saying, I'm pro-Jesus, and I'll make up my own way into the kingdom. None of that is how you receive kingdom blessing. I think Jesus would say to all of us, no, quiet. I'm I'm not taking you just because you're on my team. You have to listen to me, and I will tell you how to come into the kingdom. Okay? So I think we in America, we maybe as valley Brookers and me specifically, are all capable of making the same heart mistake that this woman made. Okay? Now, we're getting closer to the main point. I promise we're almost there. We are going to now look at Jesus' response to her and therefore us. And this response comes not in their exchange. His response is, listen to me, and I will tell you into the way to the kingdom. But then it's in the entire gospel of Luke. It's in his entire ministry, all of his life, his life and death and resurrection. That's where Jesus tells us how to come into the kingdom. Okay? So I want to look maybe more bird's eye view at the entire gospel now to look at our way into the kingdom. And the first thing I want to look at is the parable of the prodigal son. The parable of the prodigal son is in Luke 15. And Luke is really designed to highlight this parable as the center of its gospel. I think that Luke is saying, if you want to boil Jesus' parables into one parable, this is the most important parable. Um, Charles Dickens also said, this is the best story ever written. So Jesus, Luke, and Charles Dickens like this story. It's a good story. Um... here's the story of the prodigal son. I know you know it, but there was a rich father who had two sons, an older son and a younger son. And the younger son says, Dad, you can drop dead. I want half your money. And he takes half of his dad's money, and he runs off to a far country. And in that far country, he does not live according to good Christian guidelines. He spends his money on things that good Christians should not spend their money on, and he spends his nights doing things good Christians should not do. And he wastes all of his money, and he ends up in a pig farm feeding pigs, and he's so hungry that he has to eat the pig food. And so the son in this far country turns around and he says, Look, the slaves in my dad's house eat better than this. I'm going to go home. Maybe my dad won't kill me. Maybe I'll be allowed to be a slave for my dad. So he comes home from the far country. And as he's walking over the hill, his father sees him and his father runs to him. And I'm sure you've heard all the commentators say that in the first century it was, Ill, it was ignoble for a rich person to run. If you're rich, you don't have to run anymore. That's what other people get to do for you. So the rich father runs to his son saying, I don't even care about my status. I just want to be with my boy. And he grabs his son and he hugs him and he puts a robe on his shoulders and he puts a ring on his finger and he puts new sandals on his feet and he throws a party for his son. And he says, my son was dead, but he's been resurrected. I have my boy back with me. I think the heart of this parable is saying, if you want into the kingdom of God, if you want to receive kingdom blessings, don't make up your own way in. The way into the kingdom of God is you have to have the heart of the prodigal son saying, out here in the world, I have nothing. This does not satisfy me. All the world can offer me is pig slop. It's not, it's, it's not satisfying the deep hum inside my spirit. Father, I know I've sinned against you, but I need to come home. And I know I don't deserve it, but if you'll have me, I want to be your slave. That is, it is only with that heart attitude that we come into the kingdom. And when we come into the kingdom with that heart attitude, we can expect God, our Father, to respond the way the Father responds in this story, to run out to us and hug us and come in and say, yes, I want to give you all kingdom blessings. It's with the heart attitude of the prodigal son. There's another story in the Gospel of Luke, the story of the thief on the cross. Um, The story of the thief on the cross repenting is only recorded in the Gospel of Luke. Um, He doesn't repent in the other Gospels. But in the Gospel of Luke, the story goes like this. Jesus is dying on the cross, and he's dying between two criminals who deserve to be executed. They des- well, not really. The Roman Empire crucifies people willy-nilly. But at least according to the Roman Empire, they deserve to be crucified. They, they, they've done something to put themselves up there. And one of, the, one of the criminals starts by mocking Jesus. And then he says, actually, Jesus, I know that you are bringing in the true kingdom. Please remember me. I don't deserve to be a part of the kingdoms of this world. I don't des- deserve to be a part of the kingdom of God. But Jesus, please remember me. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. The thief on the cross has the same heart as the prodigal son. I can't bring anything to even the kingdoms of this world. How much less could I bring something to the kingdom of God? But Jesus, please remember me. Having the heart of the prodigal son and the heart of the thief on the cross, that is the way into the kingdom of God. Jesus says this outright in Luke eighteen sixteen. Remember, Jesus is, this is still towards the end of the road trip. So Jesus is on his, the end of his very intense political road trip. Things are, are heating up. They're almost at Jerusalem. And there are parents who want to bring their children to Jesus. And the apostles say, you, this guy's very busy. He's got a tight schedule. Don't bring your kids to Jesus. And Jesus says, don't stop the little children from coming to me. The kingdom of God belongs to people like them. If you want to come into the kingdom of God, you have to have the heart of a child before its parents. A six-year-old doesn't wake up and say, Mom and Dad, I know you're going to pay for the food today, but I've worked out a payment plan. Mom and Dad, if I, just, if I do this many chores and I work this many hours, I'll pay you back for all my food. The six-year-old either gets completely taken care of by the parents or the six-year-old dies. There's no gap back and forth. There's no six-year-old and parent payment plan. Either the parents take care of the child or the child is gone. That, that is the attitude of us coming into the kingdom of God. Father, there's nothing I can offer you, but I must be brought into the kingdom completely by your grace or I'm going to die. That is the heart attitude of us coming into the kingdom of God. Okay, now, Jesus is also paradoxical in his statements about how we come into the kingdom of God in the gospel of Luke. Because on the one hand, Jesus is saying things like this. You have to have the prodigal son's heart. You have to have the thief on the cross's heart. You have to have a child's heart. But on the other hand, Jesus says things like this. Luke nine twenty-three. So this is still when he's up in Galilee. When Jesus is still up in Galilee, he says this. He said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever is willing to lose his life for my sake will keep it. If you want into the kingdom of God, your dedication to me has to be so serious that you're willing to be publicly executed in my name. If you aren't so dedicated to me that you'll die on a cross for me, don't bother. We don't need you in the kingdom. Jesus also says things like this, Luke 14. So this is in the middle of his political march. Jesus said, or so Luke 14, 25. Now great crowds surrounded Jesus. And he turned to all the crowds on this road trip. And he says to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. And, and there's comments to be made about the Greek and idioms and hyperbole and all of, all of those qualifications are true. But the heart of what Jesus is saying is, if you want into the kingdom, but you don't love me more than your own family, don't bother. We don't need you in the kingdom. The only people coming into the kingdom are the people who are so dedicated to me that they are willing to die, and they love me more than their own family. And the physical illustration of these comes from Simon of Cyrene. Oh, it's really dark on the projector. But this is a great painting of Simon of Cyrene helping Jesus carry his cross up Golgotha. Remember, when Jesus is walking up the hill to be crucified... Uh, they grab Simon out of the crowd and Simon has to help Jesus carry the cross up the hill. And Simon gets the splinters and the blood and the sweat of the cross on his own back because he's helping Jesus up the hill. Simon is a physical illustration of this idea that coming into the kingdom means I'm giving so much dedication to Jesus that I'll carry a cross up a hill if I have to. This is the way into the kingdom. So, so my summary of of how Jesus responds to this woman throughout the entire gospel of Luke, this is my summary. We come into the kingdom and receive kingdom blessings by self-abandoned faith in the grace of God, in the grace of God alone. We have nothing to bring but everything to receive. Kingdom kingdom blessing comes through faith alone with faith understood as nothing less than a life-altering, affection-reordering, drop-every-other-thing type deal. The way into the kingdom is saying I have nothing to bring you father unless you cover me in grace. I can't come in and I am so dedicated to you Jesus that I will die for you. This is the only heart way into the kingdom. Don't make up your own ways into the kingdom. Don't make up in saying, well, if you're related to Jesus, you get in. If you say I believe in Jesus when I'm eight years old, I'm in. If I vote the right way or the left way, that must mean I'm in. If I follow all the right Christian rules, that must mean I'm in. Don't make up your own way in. The only way into kingdom blessing is self-abandoned faith in the grace of God alone with faith understood as drop everything else, this is all I care about type faith. I will die for you. And this is the main point, just in case you're keeping score. Okay. So we've moved through the text up to my one main point. But um, like I said, I want to end with two extra bonus reminder preacher points. Because I think these need to be put in front of our face whenever we read a text like this. Here's one bonus preacher reminder. You can't not be giving all-out allegiance to something. Jesus says the way into the kingdom is give me all-out allegiance You can't not be giving all out allegiance to something. It is not as if we are free, autonomous Americans walking around enjoying different things, and then Jesus comes out of the blue and says, I demand absolute allegiance. You are all always giving absolute allegiance to something in life. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be in my kingdom, I have to be the thing you're giving absolute allegiance to. I don't want to be just one thing you're for on the list of other things while you are really giving allegiance to something else. You can't not give all out allegiance to something. This is a quote. I've used this quote before, but it's so good. I'm going to use it again, and I'll probably use it in the future. This is a quote from David Foster Wallace. He's an author. What I really like, he tragically committed suicide in 2008, and he was kind of on the verge of Christianity. Maybe at the end, he converted. But um, he said this in a commencement speech. So at this point in his life, he's thoroughly secular, and he says this quote in a commencement speech to a college, which is thoroughly secular, uh, a class of graduates. And this commencement speech is online, by the way. It's called This is Water. And here's what he says in his This is Water speech. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah or the Wiccan Mother Goddess, he's not a Christian, the, the spiritual reason for picking something like that is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, If they are where you tap your real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they put you in the grave. Worship romance or family, and you will put a burden on your spouse and kids that they cannot bear, and it will ruin you. This is the truth. You can't not worship. Jesus is saying the way into the kingdom is you have to give me all out allegiance, expecting me to give you grace. And if you aren't giving Jesus all out allegiance, you are giving all out allegiance to something else. This is the second bonus preacher reminder. Jesus is the all is the only all out allegiance receiver who will die for you. If you are giving all out allegiance to any other God, that God is not willing to go on a, on a cross for your life. If you are giving all-out allegiance to any other god, that god will not die for you. This is a quote from Tim Keller. Tim Keller gave this speech. He gave a series of speeches in England. They were kind of evangelistic speeches. And they're also on YouTube. And this is from speech number four. He says, Obviously, when we look at the pagan gods of the ancient world, we see that they were heartless. Why would people worship gods who cared so little for them, we think? But if we worship money or family or romance or religiosity or career or comfortability or reputation or ministry, your God is just as heartless as theirs were. The only God who won't crush you but who is willing to be crushed for you is named Jesus. Jesus is saying there is only one way into the kingdom— you must receive it all by my grace and you must give me all-out allegiance. You are always giving all-out allegiance to something and the only all-out allegiance receiver who's willing to embrace you and run over the hill and grab you and put a robe on your shoulder and a ring on your finger and new sandals on your feet is named Jesus. Worship team can come on up. I'm going to close this in prayer. Father, thank you for your love for us. We are the children in the prodigal son who have taken your blessings and run away to a far land and squandered them. We deserve to be slaves in your house, but the gospel, the good news is that you come and not only forgive us, and you not only let us back in, but you love us like children, and that in your kingdom, we receive the many blessings that you have promised the family of Abraham. We receive your presence and your peace. We receive new life. And we want to walk in the blessings that you have given us. We should be continually amazed by all that you have given us. And we should be continually reminded that the only way to receive the blessings you have given us is by your grace. We don't bring anything, but we receive everything. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.